My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. Uh, it's really good to see all of you. Uh, if you're visiting for the first time, I want to give you a special welcome. And if you'd like to find out more about this church, uh, stop at the Hub. Uh, that's the circle of tables out in the gathering area. We've got a packet of information and a CD and some other things that we'll give you. And that kind of let you know what we're about, what we're called to do. Uh, please turn off all possible noisemakers at the present time. That would include iPods, droids, blackberries, blueberries, a Mikey, that would include your little Game Boy that you got over there. Yeah, we know about that. And I, I've got my, uh, some of my family here, Mikey and Emma and Steve and uh, Pam and hi, you guys. So uh, turn, turn those off, those little noisemakers. Um, and happy Father's Day, everybody. Happy Father's Day. Good to, for all the fathers here and the grandfathers in that category. Fantastic. Um, then the only, there's no other announcements. This is incredible. We got no ministry moment and no announcements. So there's more time for preaching. That's good. But make sure that you read the bulletin because there's a lot of stuff going on. And uh, we'd like you to be informed about all the stuff that's going on or get on the website. And keep all the ministries covered in prayer. Uh, you know, Minnesotans kind of take a break from everything uh, during uh, the summertime. But, and the kingdom just goes on. And we got a lot of ministries going on. So we, we covet your prayers. Oh, one more thing before I get going. Uh, you might have noticed this very attractive band I have uh, here. I want to give a shout-out to Brian and Angela in Oregon who sent me this. Um, they read the book uh, that I wrote a little bit ago called Present Perfect, which is on staying awake to the presence of God, being mindful of God's presence uh, moment by moment. And uh, I mentioned in the book there about my friend Dave who has rubber bands around his arm to remind him uh, that he's supposed to stay awake. And they, they uh, wrote into this network, uh, NetBrands Corp., and got custom-made things it's a little band that says, are you awake? And um, it's just an idea. We need reminders to stay present to God because he's always present to us, amen? And so it'd be cool to start a movement, to have a bunch of people walking around these bands. Are you awake? And then you can snap it, you know, just to kind of you know, reinforce the, the reminder there. Yes, punish yourself for forgetting. I really had every intention of moving on. I, I really did. Yeah, you have to lean on this. I, we've been, in a series on scandalous love, it ended three, four weeks ago. And I can't get off it. I, I, and so we added on to it the parable of the two lost sons. And then we added on to it last week the parable of the lost coin. And um, if you weren't here, I encourage you to get that. God just kind of showed up in a unique way there. And I was going to move on because we've got the point about the lost stuff, right? But on Tuesday morning, I woke up and it was a strange sort of thing. I, I felt like I was in the presence, actually being carried carried by uh, the Good Shepherd. And I was the little lost sheep being carried on the shoulders of the Good Shepherd. And I just, as I was laying there, just sort of enjoying this feeling of being carried by the Good Shepherd. I'm this scared and lonely sheep, and he found me. I, I, I knew in that moment that I, had, I was supposed to talk on this parable. We're kind of going backwards, actually, because this is the first parable that Jesus gives in uh, Luke 15. And then he gives the parable of the lost coin, and then he gives the parable of the, the lost two sons, but we're working backwards, so I feel I'm supposed to share the story of the lost sheep. And I, I really felt like the Lord was saying, just in an informal way, get up and share the story. And give the Holy Spirit one more time to get this scandalous love, this outrageous love, this mind-boggling, unfathomable, incomprehensible, beautiful love, I give it a chance to work it in even deeper into our hearts. And so, though you've probably heard this story many times, I want to encourage you to keep an open mind and open heart and just receive it, just drink it, and put yourself in the position of uh, this lost sheep. So I'm entitling this The Lost Party, or The Party of the Lost. 
Because what we're going to see is that the kingdom of God is a party for people who know they're lost. It's a party for losers. And the good news is that we all belong to that category. We're all losers. And so we're all invited to this party. It starts in Luke chapter 15, verses 4 through 7. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? It may take a long time. This good shepherd's not going to give up. And when he finds it, he joyfully, joyfully, joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep, my, lost, my precious lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. And really what I think Jesus is saying is those who think they don't need to repent. Pray with me here. Father, uh, I pray that you would, for every person in this auditorium or listening through podcasts or some other means, open our ears and open our hearts and our spirits to receive this word as though it's the first time we've ever heard it. And for some, maybe it is the first time they've ever heard it. But Lord God, use it to uh, really drive the good news. It's good. That good news into our hearts. And to reframe the way we see you and reframe the way we see ourselves and each other. And begin to live out in a, in a celebratory way the kingdom of God that you've invited us to. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's people said. Amen. Amen. Parable of the lost sheep. Now remember the context here. The context is that Jesus has been hanging out with the quote-unquote wrong people. Uh, he claims to be a teacher and some rumors that he's the Messiah. And yet he's hanging out with the lowlifes, tax collectors and prostitutes, among others. These were the, the bottom feeders of the first century, if you will, the, the drachma people, as we talked about last week. These are the ones that are the most harshly judged by religious folks. They are the worst of the sinners. And here Jesus is hanging out with them, eating with them, even partying with them. And remember that to eat with people in the first century uh, was really a way of saying, you are my people. You belong to me. This is my tribe. By contrast, the Pharisees, they're the hyper-religious people in the first century. They're, they're the ones everyone looks up to to be the guardians of morality and righteousness and truth. They believe all the right things and they do all the right things. They are the orthodox folks, the Bible-believing folks of the first century. And they're looking at Jesus and they're seeing who he hangs out with and they're scandalized by that, outraged by that. How dare he claim that he is a good teacher, a religious teacher, and yet associate with the likes of these? Because these folks are certain that God, when he sends the Messiah, God's going to come to them. They're the insiders. They're the special people of God. The righteous ones, the obedient ones, the holy ones. Not these prostitutes and tax collectors. These are the folks, these righteous folks, spend their time trying to pass more stringent laws against the sinners. Because the sinners are, after all, the problem with society, the problem with the country, the reason why God's judging the country. And so we need to, we need to control their behavior, we righteous folks. Uh, otherwise, the country will be destroyed. And yet here Jesus is hanging out with them, partying with them. You could get the impression that he's condoning their behavior. They're scandalized by that. So they draw the conclusion. They see he does miracles, but the miracles he's doing, well, they can't be of God. No way. Rather, the miracles he's doing must be from the devil. And so Jesus responds as they're murmuring among themselves and doing their little religious gossip. Jesus tells them these parables that we've been looking at as a way of explaining to them why he's hanging out with prostitutes. 
and partying with prostitutes. And in the course of giving this answer, he's explaining who the true God is. And he's explaining what the true kingdom is all about. And so he tells this parable. Now the first thing about this parable is that it says that the sheep was lost. It's a lost sheep. It's interesting, but the main way that the New Testament defines the human condition is by saying that we're lost. We're lost. It's an interesting word to use for the situation that we're in. Something's lost if it's not where it's supposed to be. It's gotten misplaced. I know a lot about that one. It's lost because I put it here and now it's over there or somewhere. You don't know where it is. It's lost. And that is where humanity is. We've been misplaced. We're not where we're supposed to be. We're out of sorts. If there's any doctrine in the Bible that I think is, is confirmable by our own experience, it's this one. That there's something lost with humanity. We're out of place. If you're honest with yourself, if you'll let yourself be self-aware and feel this, you know on some level that you're lost. And what I mean by that is this. We, we, we just don't feel like we're in sync with the world. We feel like aliens to some degree. Some of us may be more than others for sure, but, but, but we're out of place here. This is why I can't believe that we're just the natural products of natural time and chance evolution. Because if we were just nature producing nature, we would feel natural in the world, but we don't. We don't feel natural at all. It, it, the world is weird. Like, do you ever... Do you ever wake up, I, I, I hope some of you uh, can relate to this experience, all of a sudden you're aware that how odd it is that you exist? Anybody? Anybody? <laughs> it's like, this isn't pretend, this is real, this is r real. It, all, the, the oddness it strikes you. This is reality here. For me it happens sometimes right first thing in the morning. Like, this is real. And it's so odd. What is reality? We, we can't even get our brains around it. We don't have a clue what it is. It's very structure is a mystery to us. Uh, time and space, it's contradictory to our minds. We can't conceive of it beginning. We can't conceive of, of time uh, uh, not beginning. We can't conceive of space having an end. We can't conceive of space not having an end. Our brains can't begin to make sense out of that, out of this, and yet here we are. We exist. It's weird. Who would have thought? Why is there something rather than nothing? We don't have a clue what's going on here. We don't know what reality is. What does matter? Some physicists just thought, well, that's energy, duh. But, you see, what's energy? <laughs> we can say what it does. It makes the little bells and whistles go off on our machines. But we can't say what it is. This, this whole thing is very, very odd. Very, very odd. The philosopher Martin Heidegger talked about our throwingness. Here's this German word that we translate throwingness. And what he's trying to get at is that we feel like we were just thrown here. We just sort of pop into existence here. None of us voted on whether or not we wanted to exist. We just find ourselves existing. We're sort of like Alice in Wonderland. We're in this weird, weird world. And sometimes we lose the weirdness because we get used to it, but it's very, very strange. And it seems like we should have a little bit of a clue as to what this is all about, but in our natural minds, we don't. And there's a little bit of pain that goes with this. You can try to suppress it. You can try to deny it, but there is... If you're self-aware and are honest with yourself, there's a pain there. Um, there's a yearning. Something's off. We feel lost. Uh, we called it on Easter, Zainsucht, the German word Zainsucht, which means a yearning for something indefinable. You can't quite grasp what it is, but there's this yearning, this longing. It's like craving of food that doesn't exist. Ah, it's frustrating. There ought to be this food here, but you can't find it. There's a sense of emptiness that goes with this. Uh, a sort of futility. It feels like life should be bigger. It should be important. It should be more significant. It should have more meaning. And yet, it doesn't seem to pan out that way. 
Even the pinnacle experiences, we can all admit, can't we, that, that it, it feels like well, it just fell a little bit short. It's kind of a disappointment. We, we try to give our life meaning and significance by accomplishing things and doing important things and achieving things and acquiring things, but it never satisfies. There's always this emptiness, this yearning. It really begins to hit you around midlife. Where, I mean, it hits you before that too, but it really takes on a special edge. Midlife, where you begin to have a sense, some of us anyways. And, and through faith, you fight this, but, but it's, just a, it's a evidence of our lostness. We feel like maybe we've missed it. I, I missed it. My life could have had meaning, could have had importance, could have been significance, but I missed it. And then some people, unfortunately, try to go find it, and they don't know what it is. And so they think it's true love, and they go that way. Or they think it's a different career, they go that way. And I'm not saying don't ever change your careers, but we start chasing, like Alice in Wonderland, chasing the white rabbit, the ever-loosened dreams, zanes of yearning for something that we can't define. Sometimes people do crazy things as they start to feel the emptiness of their life. You thought it would be something. When you're younger, it's easy to kind of delude yourself into visions of grandeur. You're going to be a somebody. You're going to do some things, yes. And then we get to a certain age, and you realize you're mediocre like the rest of us. <laughs> Just ordinary people. And even if you do succeed in doing some really big things, there again, it comes up short. We're lost. We're out of place. Something's gone missing. And, and, and the Bible tells us what that is. We have, we've, we've, we've been separated from our source, our creator. We were never meant to achieve or acquire our meaning and significance and sense of fullness. The meaning and fullness that we were meant to have is the one that he gives us. And, and that would be satisfying. But since we're separated from him, we can't tap into that, except through Jesus Christ. Can't tap into that source, which is why we spend all of our time and energy trying to give it to ourselves, trying to acquire it which can only be given by God for free. We're lost sheep. We've gone astray, the Bible says. We're in this wasteland, in a threatened place. But then Jesus says in this parable, the shepherd, the good shepherd goes looking for us to find that lost sheep. You know, a lot of people have this idea that God is up there in the sky far, far away. And our job is to find him. And some people go to incredible lengths to find God or ultimate reality or what have you. Years meditating on certain things or all sorts of seminars or all sorts of books. And you think, if I try this or go there or try this religion or try this ritual or this prayer or what have you, I'm going to find God, ultimate reality, meaning, purpose or something. So we're looking for him. And when people envision God is sort of sitting out back, you know, sort of on his royal throne, you know, sort of, I'm God. And find me. Come looking for me. Try harder. But see, if the shepherd would have been waiting for the sheep to come back, it's not going to happen. Those sheep, when they wander away, uh, they're not exceptionally bright. They, they can't find their way back. They get eaten by wolves. But this shepherd is a good shepherd. He goes out and looks for this sheep, high and low. Got to find this precious sheep of his. God is not out there waiting for us. He's, he's in here pursuing us. Now, someone asked a really good question last week uh, as I talked about the, the lady who desperately looks for this wedding coin. They asked after the service, if God's looking for us, then why do we have to look for him? Well, it does seem like we have to look for him. We have to, you know, just search and do all these things to try to find him. In fact, the Bible says, seek for him and he will be found. So why do we have to look for him if he's already looking for us? And the answer is that both of those things are true. He is looking for us and we need to look for him. But here's the, here's the important truth. The only reason we could even look for him, according to the Bible, 
is that he's been looking for us all along. And our looking for him, our yearning for him, are beginning to identify that we can't give ourselves fullness of life and meaning and purpose. That is the first sign that he's beginning to find us. God's not looking for us the way I always look for my keys. God knows all things. You know, he knows the location of everything. And so it's not a location kind of a searching. He's searching for our hearts, the hearts of these lost wayward sheep to begin to turn them around and to create a hunger in us so that we yearn for him. Here's a really important verse. It's uh, frequently misinterpreted, but I will give you here the right interpretation. I will never pass up a, a, an opportunity to correct bad theology. It's just an, it's a cool verse. Acts chapter 17. This is Paul talking, Apostle Paul. He says, from one man, that's Adam, he made all the nations. We sang a lot about the nations this morning. It was really cool. He's the God of all the nations. And out of those nations, he, he, he made those nations so that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out, the word there is horizo. He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Now God did this. Here's why he horizo those nations. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and perhaps find him. Though the truth is, he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Holy Spirit, help us to, to grasp this. What Paul is saying here is this. Some, some people think that uh, that verse means that God is controlling all the nations, meticulously controlling all the nations, so that what the nations do is exactly what God wants them to do. The downside of that, of course, is you'd have to then grant that what, what happened in Nazi Germany was God's doing. And what happened with Stalin was God's doing. And what happened when the Europeans came over here and slaughtered Native Americans, that was all God's doing. And what happened when we enslaved and imported all the Africans, that was all God's doing. And I don't think you want to go there. But the verse doesn't teach that. What Paul says is that God was working in the horizon. We get the word horizon from it. Horizon is a boundary. It's a parameter. And so Paul is saying is that God is involved in all this national stuff and he's involved at the parameters, but his goal is always to get people to yearn for him and seek him and find him. Nations rise and nations fall. Nations conquer nations. There's bloodshed been going on throughout all of history. It's barbarism, and God detests that. He doesn't control that violence. But he's not a prissy God who's afraid of getting dirty. He dives into the stuff. He works through the decisions of people to bring good out of it. And the main good he's trying to bring out of it is to create in that context of that national rising and national falling, a, a context in which people can yearn for him and within that cultural context possibly find him. And so far as there's light available, God wants to create in people a hunger for that light. There hasn't been a person that's ever existed that God hasn't been searching for, trying to create a, a turning in their heart towards him. When Egypt was rising and when Egypt was falling, God was there. When China was rising, when China falls, God is there. When Assyria was rising and Assyria was falling, or Babylon was rising, or Babylon was falling, or America rising and America will someday fall, God is there. He's working in the horizon, on the horizon. And while the kings have their ma magnificent ambitions for conquering and being victorious and nationalism, God's only ambition is to create people, to find people to turn their heart and make them his sheep instead of lost sheep. God's involved at all times and all places. He's uh, never far from any one of us, Paul says. In him we live and move and have our being. He's like the air. We move through. We're swimming in God. So is every person. And God is always at work trying to find them. And the first evidence that a person is being found is that they start to turn towards him. They start to direct that zainsuk, that hunger towards him. They start to move towards him. 
But the only reason why we can seek him is because he's been seeking us. That's why. That's why in the kingdom there is no room, no room for boasting. No one can feel proud of the fact that you're a Christian while someone else is not. No one can feel better than anyone else. Because the reality is that we were dead in our sins, dead in our transgressions. And if it wasn't for God seeking after us and empowering us and turning us, we would not be turned. The only reason why we even long for him is that he's been longing for us and turning us. So in the kingdom, it's all by grace, all by grace, and there's never any room for boasting. This good shepherd is always looking for us. And when he finds us, the gospel here says, parable says, he is joyful, he rejoices. And the main thing I got out of that this week is that if he's rejoicing, well, then it means, it means he's not mad. Think about it. Didn't you? I, I always assumed he was mad. I mean, early on in my life, I assumed he was mad. I, I, I think like most people, I always thought God was angry. Uh, we had this picture. He's very disappointed with us. So much sin and filth and vile junk in the world, and we're so screwed up, and he's mad. It's like that bumper sticker says, Jesus is coming back, and man, is he peeved. <laughs> Irate. Yeah, you know, that's the picture that we have of God. He's just mad. He's just miserable sinners. And I always thought God was like that. You know, part of it was that when I was a kid, uh, authorities were always mad at me. I, it was the one thing I was good at in life was making authorities mad. I, I was hyperactive and, and, and it was always, I just was, had a gift of, of, of making authorities angry at me. Mom was always mad at me. Grandma was always mad at me. Sent me to Catholic school. The nuns were always mad at me. Mother Superior really would get mad at me. And she had an ugly stick to prove it. Because see, the authorities, their main job, I was assumed, was to have rules, right? They create the rules. And if you break one of the rules, they get very irate because they take it personally. You just insulted them. And, and the way I got life early on was by being the best rule breaker. Uh, my peers liked that about me. So I, I always had authorities mad at me. So, of course, God is the super authority, so I think God is always super mad at me. He's all holy, I'm told, so that means he's got the most rules, and he gets the most ticked off when you break them. And I'm the magnificent rule breaker, so God, of course, is mad at me. I went through a period of time where I never even talked to God. I would just pray to Mary because at least the, her statue in church had a smile on it. I thought, maybe I have a chance there. <laughs> it was... I remember I, I was a theologian from a very young age. I was in first grade, first grade catechism. And the nun was explaining uh, uh, the story of Adam and Eve. And uh, the nun uh, said that we uh, ate of, Adam and Eve ate the apple that, that was forbidden. That's all I remember about it. And I don't remember the details of it, but at one point she said, I remember this, that that's why we have tornadoes. <laughs> and there's a, there's a little bit of truth there, actually. But, but I remember thinking to myself, whoa, God really doesn't get over things very fast. <laughs> I mean, really? He's still striking us with tornadoes because someone ate an apple they weren't supposed to eat. And then I thought, then I thought, whoa, I do stuff. This is six, seven years old. I do stuff that's way worse than biting from an apple. Now, I, I had a particularly jaded childhood, but uh, I, I mean, I, I, this is, I'll tell you this. I, I, we, where I lived, I was all older guys, and my older brother would get me in these old, with a lot of these older guys. And so we had a smoking club, six years old, seven years old, Lansing, Michigan, a smoking club. We'd steal our parents' cigarettes and go out in the woods and smoke. Mikey and Emma, don't you ever even think about that. Uh, it, it was terrible. We'd go out there and it'd be puffing on our, 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 our parents' stuff. 
I remember one time I started coughing because I inhaled some, and some kid, I think he meant to say, your lungs are hurting, but he said, your soul is shrinking. <laughs> like, no. And I always felt really guilty about this. We had other clubs that were just really, really bad as well. And, and uh, I know, so I was thinking, if God gets so mad at eating an apple that you weren't supposed to eat, to the point where he sends, he's sending tornadoes thousands of years later, what's it going to do with me? God, I'm so bad, and I always felt guilty about this stuff, and never guilty enough to stop. Isn't that the story of our life? And, and, and so I, I had this picture that God is, I'm in like a lot of trouble. And even later on when I came to Christ, that was kind of my conception of God. It's just that now they told me I have a lightning rod. Okay, Jesus is my lightning rod, so God's wrath gets deflected on him, so I'm off the hook. So long as I'm doing okay, but once I screw up, well, now the lightning's back on me. It was a God who was always at least disappointed and usually pretty irate. What a, what a relief. A complete mind-blowing liberation it was when I really began to see that that's not true. God, God smiles at me. God's not mad at me. In fact, God rejoices. God rejoices that he's found me. And there's maybe a lot of stuff. I'll, I'll grant him a lot of stupid stuff in my life. You know, I grant that. But, but me, he smiles at me. He rejoices over. I can envision God with a smile on God's face, delighted. The Bible says he claps his hands, he sings, he dances over us. Because see, our worth, our worth was never about how good or bad we are or what we achieve or don't achieve or how we compare to anyone else. Our worth was always to be from the foundation of the world what God gave us. It's for free. And that doesn't change. And that's what he delights in when he finds me. You know, there's a smile on God's face. How, what a reframe that is. You actually start to like God instead of just being afraid of God. I think sometimes we, we, get, we, we just get mixed up on the, on the whole idea of God's anger and God's wrath. It's in the Bible for sure, but what happens is we attribute to God our screwed up kind of anger and wrath. Dysfunctional authorities, like the ones I often had to deal with, see, they set rules, and if you break the rule, they're mad because it's an insult to them. They got life from being the rule giver, and now you insulted them. And so there, that rage is sort of a, a vengeful rage. It's a get-even kind of rage. It's a pay-me-back kind of a rage. God, there is a rage of God, but it's the rage of love. It's a very different kind of a rage. Uh, God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And so everything God does and everything God feels is consistent with love. And so God's rage is a rage of love. It's a little bit like this. It's a silly analogy, but, but it will work. Uh, a few nights ago, Shelly and I were taking Max out, our dog, out for a walk. We love our dog. Probably too much. We just smother this dog in love. We just love this dog. And so we're going out for a walk. We, we usually go around 10, 11, 12 at night. Take the dog out for a little walk. And um, uh, because it's late at night, sometimes we'll let him off the leash as we approach the park that we let him run around in. And he just loves to run and sniff and do what dogs do. So we let him loose. He's all you know, happy. And usually he stays fairly close to us. But I think he saw a rabbit or something because he just bolted out ahead of us and he crossed this he started going to the street which is a pretty busy street in our neighborhood and uh we heard a car coming and shelly shelly screams out max no and and, and max you know stops and kind of gets low like dogs do and kind of like you know, comes back like this and pretty much saying sorry 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 so very, 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 very sorry. Because he thinks that we're mad. And there was a rage there, but see, it wasn't, we were mad that he broke a rule. There is a rule. Max, you got to stay close. But we were mad about that. We were concerned for him because we love this dog. 
And so this, this scream, no, is a scream of love. But Max, being Max, the dog, he heard it as anger. Oh, the masters are mad at me. I think that's what we do to God all the time. Oh, he's mad. He's going to throw the thunderbolt. But what he's saying is, no, you're, you're, you're going in a course that's going to destroy yourself. Precisely because he loves us. He screams when he sees us falling into self-destructive behaviors. He screams when he sees us harming one another. He screams at violence. He screams at injustice. He screams at oppression. But it's a scream of love. He sees that we're going down the self-destructive path. There's not a get-even quality with God. He's not, he's not getting life from being the rule giver. No, he's a God of, of passionate love who pursues us and screams no. Some people have the opposite image of God. They think God is this nice kind of semi-out-of-it grandpa. God, he's up there like, oh, you kids, just go ahead. You kids all have fun. And, and you know, just, he's the nice kind of quasi-Santa Claus God. But that's not accurate either. If God didn't rage like this, he would be less than all loving. If he didn't care, well, then, then there'd be an amoral or apathetic quality to God. No, no, he's a God who passionately loves, and his anger comes out of that. The shepherd finds the sheep, and he rejoices. And as he rejoices, he picks this, this sheep up, and the Bible says he puts it on his shoulders around his neck. He could have been very angry at this sheep. Think about it. Stupid sheep, dumb sheep, maybe go, I, I've been looking two days for you. Can't you just stay where all the other sheep are? Could have been mad, could have said, hey, you walk home on your own. Get out a little shepherd rod and hit him a little bit. I'm not going to carry you, it's your own fault. But see, the sheep is going to be scared. Sheep, get, when, they're all, when, they're, when they're isolated from the, the rest of the pack, they, 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 they get scared. They're very jittery. So the sheep would be scared, the sheep would be weak. And so the shepherd, rejoicing, says joyfully, picks the sheep up, puts it around uh, his neck. That's how they do it, and carries the sheep. I don't know how far away the sheep is, but this shepherd's going to carry the sheep all the way home. That sheep will get heavy after a while, but he doesn't care. It's a joy that he found his sheep. In the same way, the good shepherd, God, finds us and is willing to do whatever it takes uh, to get us home. To bring us home. And we, reading the story from the perspective of the gospel, from the cross, we know what it took God to bring us home. What it takes to carry us. We're not easy to carry. He had to go to Calvary. He had to die. Uh, he died a God-forsaken hellish death. But we shouldn't think that he did it because he was angry or because he had to placate the Father's anger. He did it out of passionate love. He did it out of joy. The Bible says that for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. Nothing pleasant about this whatsoever. It was unthinkably painful. The spiritual side was worse than the physical side, and yet Jesus considered it joy. Why? Because by virtue of this, you get to be carried home. He wants to be with you. He doesn't want to be in the home alone without you. And that's not just for humanity in general either, as we said last week. It's for you individually. He doesn't want to spend eternity without you. And so it's a joy for him to find you, and a joy to carry you, and a joy to die for you. There's no grumbling along the way. No, there's simply joy, celebration. And I, I envision this, this shepherd as he's carrying this sheep home. I, you know, he's got it right on the shoulders there, right next to his face. The, the, the shepherd's carrying this sheep. And I envision this, this loving shepherd sometimes maybe kind of bending the, the, the head of the sheep to his cheek. So they're cheek to cheek. This is what we do with Max all the time. We smother our face into his face. You ever do that with your pets? And you talk nonsense into his ear or, or whatever. I bet he was rubbing the ear and whispering into that sheep to try to calm the sheep down. There's jittery, scared sheep, lost sheep. 
And as they're traveling home, the shepherd says things like, I love you. You're my sheep. Not particularly bright all the time, but you are my sheep, and I love you. <laughs> and it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You're okay. You're with me. You're safe. I'm bringing you home. You're safe. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Just calming that sheep down. And I wonder if we can envision that for ourselves. I mean, in this war zone world in which we live, we get jittery sometimes. We take hits sometimes. We get wounded sometimes. We screw up royally sometimes. And it's so important that in those times, when we're experiencing our lostness, that we also then, right, that, right after that, right in it, in fact, we experience our carriedness, that we're being carried. And can you hear the shepherd whisper into your ear, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Now, you're the sheep, so you don't have to know how it's going to be okay. You maybe can't see how it's going to be okay. Right now, the world's falling apart. It's a disaster and nothing but a disaster. How can it be okay? Just trust that you're the sheep and he's the shepherd. And if he says it's going to be okay, well, then it's going to be okay. And see, that's how we're ministered to with this peace. The Bible says a peace that passes understanding. It's, it passes understanding because we can't understand it. We're sheep. But if we will trust our shepherd and hear that voice, right now maybe, just hear the, the gentle, loving whisper of the shepherd as he's carrying you cheek to cheek. It's so intimate and tender. Cheek to cheek, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. We're going to take care of this. We're, I, I will love you through this. If you hear that, you can, you can have just found out you have cancer and still have that peace. You, the world can be falling apart. You lost a job. You, you, all sorts of stuff's going on, and yet you can have that peace because the peace isn't based on our understanding. No, it's based on the shepherd's voice. So it's a peace that passes understanding. Hear the shepherd whisper that into your ear. It's going to be okay. Now, if you're assessing things in terms of how the world's going, well, then you'll never hear that voice. If, if, you're, if your whole disposition is defined by your circumstances... You'll never have that peace. Your peace is going to be just a peace that is understanding. So as soon as it's understandable to freak out, you're going to freak out. But no, hear the peace that passes understanding. The shepherd as he carries you intimately, lovingly, whispering, promising you. Let him carry you, and he's going to carry you home, and it's going to be okay. Which brings us to the final part of this, this gospel. He brings us home and then throws a party. Now here's the thing. We often speak of home as where people go when they die. Right? You say, oh, he went home to be with the Lord. And there's, there's, a, there's a, a truth to that, of course. But I want you to notice this. This parable is not, about a, it's not a parable about the afterlife. This is a parable about present life. And notice this. The party begins the moment, Jesus says, the moment a sinner repents. Now, the word repent there, remember, it just means turns. We, all, we often think of it as an emotional word, like when you cry and sob and are regret. No, it just means you turn. When the shepherd starts to find you, all right, and, and you turn from going in this self-destructive way and begin to orient yourself this way and you're seeking him and groping after him, like, like, like it says in Acts 17, well, now the party starts. He's found you. God doesn't wait till we die to start a party. He doesn't wait till the end of history to start a party. The party is beginning now, the moment that you are found. This is a story about our present life now, about what God thinks about us now and the party that goes on all around us right now. We are home right now. Now, what happens is this. One of the most screwed up, misunderstood aspects of Western theology has to do with our concept of salvation. As I've said a number of times around here, we frame, we tend to frame, we're taught to frame or understand salvation in a legal context where God's the judge and we're the defendant and the whole point is to get off the hook, to, to, to get acquitted. So salvation comes to mean escaping the consequences of your sin. Are you saved? We mean by that, are you going to escape hell and go to heaven? 
That's why we, 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 we'll speak about salvation in terms of the past. Are you saved? Have you been saved? Or we'll speak about it in terms of the future. Are you going to be saved? But we never talk about it as a present reality, or hardly ever. But the New Testament does. We are being saved. Because salvation is a present reality. Because salvation's not, first and foremost, a legal concept. It's a covenant concept. Which means, don't think court of law, think marriage. And we're in the process of learning how to be betrothed to our heavenly groom. And salvation is not getting off the hook, folks. Salvation is learning how to participate in the life of God now. Learning how to participate in the joy of God, in the wholeness of God, in the holiness of God here and now. It's not something that happens after you die. It's, it's, it's a thing that's happening now. God's wholeness is invading our life. The love of the shepherd is invading our life. We're being carried home now uh, in, our, in, in this life, and the party starts now. Listen to this verse. Amen. 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 It's good news. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says this. But because, this is, I could give a thousand verses on this. This is just a good one. But because of his great love for us, it's great. It's not a little bit of love. It's not just enough love. No, it's his great not love. God who is rich in mercy. He's not just a get by mercy. It's rich in, he's rich in mercy. He made us alive with Christ, look at the past tense, when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. That's why there can't be any boasting. And God raised us up, look at the past tense, with Christ, and seated us, look at the past tense, with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. This has happened already. We were dead in our transgressions, but the shepherd was looking for us and began to turn our hearts. And now we are found. And so we are already now raised up. We, all, we are already with Christ. We, all, we are already in Christ. We are already in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are right now the children of God. We are right now redeemed. We are right now forgiven. We are right now filled with the Spirit. We right now have this eternal inheritance. So the party is going on right now. As you're sitting in the pew listening to this, there's a party all around you if you have ears to hear and eyes to see. God doesn't wait till we die or till history wraps up before he throws a party. No, he, he throws the party here and now. He doesn't wait till we get all, our whole act cleaned up. Rather, he parties with us as we are, and that's what cleans up our act. Which brings us to the main point of this parable. Jesus is explaining why he's partying with prostitutes. Why would the Son of God do that? The one sinless person in history. Why would he, he go out of his way to party with tax collectors and prostitutes and other sorts of people like that. And what Jesus is saying here is this. You know, the Pharisees are looking on. Just imagine this, this, this scenario. That, that here's Jesus. The table's on the ground. Back in those days, the table would be just a little bit off the ground, so people would lay on the floor when they ate. They'd lean on one uh, elbow and eat, eat with the other arm. That's why they, it always says that they reclined at the table. So here's Jesus laying on the ground, and, and there, there's the all-holy Son of God, and right next to him is, is this prostitute, and right after that is the drug addict, and right after that is the criminal who spent most of his life in prison, and, and, and he, here's, here's the person which, uh, who's got all this, um, this miserable, miserable uh, sin going on. Here, here's the, the transvestite who was leading the, the gay pride parade. Here's the person who rips off his own people and, and doesn't even believe in his own country, and there's all those kind of people around there. And there's Jesus just having a time of life. It's a party. They're laughing. They're just crying. And he's not going out of his way to point out all the stuff that he disagrees with. He just seems to be happy to be hanging with these folks. So, of course, the Orthodox, right people, you know, holy people, look and they're just scandalized. 
That's why we call this whole thing the scandalous love of God. How dare he? These are the, pe these are the people that are destroying the country. So Jesus looks up and just envision this. And he says, you guys, because he loves them too, right? He loves them. They're just harder to get at. It's interesting, though, that the only people that Jesus ever got mad at were those folks. He never got mad at the prostitutes or, 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 or the tax collectors. He did get a little ticked off at the Pharisees sometimes. They're, they're hard to reach. And so he has to use kind of a tougher kind of love. But here he looks up and he says, you guys, you got the, you got the wrong picture of God and you got the wrong understanding of the kingdom because if you had the right understanding, you'd understand all of this. I have to hang with these people. These are my people. This is why I'm here. These are the lost folks. And I've come to save the lost. Now, I would do the same for you if you just admit that you're lost, but you won't. These people receive me, and the first sign that they're being found is not that they have a perfect life, but they want to hang out with me. <laughs> and they want me to be part of their people, and I want them to be people. So I've got to party. I've got to celebrate. This is why I'm here. This is what it's all about. And this is what the kingdom is all about. It's a party of losers, a party for those who know that they are lost. And the one requirement is that you'll admit that you're lost. It's good, you Pharisees, that you believe all the right stuff. Granted, it's good that you do the right behaviors. But what's really, really sad and dangerous is that you think that that is where your worth is. You think that that's what makes you valuable before God is puts you in the saved club as opposed to the unsaved club. No, 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 no. The only worth and value you'll ever have or ever need is the worth that you get for free by virtue of the fact that you're created by God and he ascribes this worth to you. If you'll accept the party invitation on that basis, come on. But to do that, you've got to get rid of your judgments. You've got to humble yourself. Jesus is parting now because, see, doing God's will is doing God's will on earth as it is in heaven, right? We just found out that there is a party in heaven when we come to him. So our job, we did it this morning, is to party now. And that's how we bring the kingdom into the world. And so you can see Jesus explaining to these Pharisees, I, the, the worth of these folks, it doesn't hang on how good they are or bad they are or how they compare to you or anyone else. Their worth is given them for free by God and there's nothing that, that they can do that will take that away. And so I'm hanging with these people because they're worth hanging with. And then you can see Jesus saying to these Pharisees that your judgments are all misbased because you're part of a religious system that's giving yourself worth and detracting it from, from them. And you can see Jesus saying to them, these folks who are around me right now, they will change, but not because of your enforcing your laws and rules. These folks, yeah, grant that they still look like lost sheep. They still maybe smell like sheep that have been out in the wilderness for a long time. They still got sheep-like thinking, sheep-like behavior. But you know what? When you hang out with Jesus, you start to take on the aroma of Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? As you party with Jesus, you know, they'll start to get on. As they see Jesus rejoicing with them and over them, and they understand that, they're, that they have this infinite worth given to them for free by God, as, as that starts to get on the inside, they get out of their bodies, they get out of their addictions, they get out of their habits. They're gradually transformed from the inside out. The reason they live the way they do is because they, they think that that's who they are. But when you start hanging out with Jesus and realizing you're a child of God and have this infinite worth, well, it starts to change you from the inside out in a way that all the rules in the world never could touch. Amen. So there's a party going on. Now, this is spoken to two folks, two, two groups of people. I'll close with this. On the one hand, this word, these three parables, are parables uh, spoken to the Pharisees. And when you think Pharisee, don't think really obvious self-righteous person. No, just a self-righteous person. Maybe a person who's not even aware that they're self-righteous. 
The parable confronts everybody who gets any degree of esteem, worth, fullness of life by comparing and contrasting with others. I may not be perfect, but at least I'm not like that. Any element of our thinking that thinks that our love by God for us is premised on the rightness of our views or rightness of our behavior in contrast to all of those low lives. This parable confronts that strong. And if you are in that class, I just want to implore you to ask God to humble your heart. Now don't think you can, of your own, own, own volition, get out of that addiction, and it is an addiction. You can't break that one. And if you did break it, you'd feel proud of it, and now you'd be back into it. No, it's an addiction. It's, a, it's, it's addiction to religion. It's the worst addiction there is. That's why Jesus is so confrontational with these folks. Ask God to humble your heart. Ask God to open up your eyes to see that you've got no room for boasting. You could not even begin to search for God unless he had already been searching for you. Everything you have, you have by God's grace and by God's grace alone. Ask God to humble you if you're in that first class, the Pharisee class. On the other hand, if you're in the class of those who realize that you're lost, that, that on your own you're a loser, and I suspect that for people hearing my, this message today, they'll be the majority because the religious folks tend to turn me off pretty quick. But God bless them. But to us who are in that category, you know, don't start getting proud of the fact that you're not a Pharisee. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I'm not in that group. Well, that's what makes me special. At least I know I'm a loser. Yeah, you just switch groups. Go back to the first group. Ask God to humble you. But see, this is a parable of incredible encouragement to us. Whatever situation you're in, whatever, whatever has gone on in your life, whatever wounds are there, whatever screw-ups have happened, whatever scary stuff is ahead of you, you need to understand that you're carried by the shepherd and hear him whisper in your ear. And you need to understand, oh, and remember that right now there is a party going on around you and for you. Now, it's also a party that's celebrating Jesus but see, you are in Jesus, and so it's a party that's celebrating you. You are finally home. You're where you belong. This is where we were meant to be forever, and it's already here. Not when we die. It's now. And so can you right now envision, as you're sitting in the pew or wherever you are listening to this, just can you hear the joy of heaven? The saints of old used to call it the laughter of heaven. There's a party going on. Can you hear it? Maybe can you see it in your mind's eye? Holy Spirit, help us to see this. Frame your life. You are sitting at the table of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. You are in Christ, which means you are loved by the Father with the same love he has for Jesus Christ right here and right now. There's a lot of imperfections. You still have a lot of sheep life stuff about you, yes. But see, he's going to love you out of that. He's going to party you out of that. He doesn't hold off or suspend the party until you get your act cleaned up. No, he starts the party at the front end. And that's what gets you cleaned up. So can we envision right here that kind of love around us? In him we live and move and have our being. If we can only remember that, walk in that awareness. Don't frame your life with uh, the, the, the natural world, you know, just the circumstances of your natural surroundings. Frame your life. See, live in the kind of narrative in the world where you understand that you are perpetually, nonstop surrounded by the loving presence of God, surrounded by the laughter of heaven, surrounded by the joy of heaven. And see how that doesn't change the way you view God, the way you change yourself, the way you view yourself, the way you treat other people. Join the party. It's a party of losers. But because of Jesus, we're lost no more.
In him we are found. I'm going to close with prayer, and as I do so, uh, I'm going to ask our prayer teams to come forward. If you're here and have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, come on up and pray with these folks, or if you just want to kneel and pray uh, on your own, feel free to do that as well. But Father, we just praise you that we were lost, but now we're found. I pray, God, for any who are afflicted with the disease of religion, and I pray you'd humble them and free them. I pray for those of us who realize that we're lost, that you'd keep us in a humble spot and encourage us, help us to hear your loving whisper, help us to hear the party around us, help us to live in that, remember that, frame our life in that. We're home, we're home. We're where we belong. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. And all of God's once lost people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go and build the kingdom.